No, but we need you to stay for your laugh track. <laughs> we can, we can, can just, just play that. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. Just have have Chris. You know, you know, you know. Nick's gonna put this in as the Doctor uh, Gill's the canned laughter. <laughs> laugh track. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by Greenwich Mean Time. So we are we are here in the in London. I went down to Greenwich. I got to see the Prime Meridian. And yet for the life of me, that's kind I of cannot, beef, right? What's that's that? a kind of beef. The Prime Meridian? No. no. But I see where you go with that. But I still for the life of me cannot figure out how to get uh outlook. To put the right <laughs> calendar time in when I try to schedule a meeting, it all yeah, comes no. down to Outlook. You can't do that. It's like Maine; oh, you can't get there. What is yeah. it the mean of? That was my. That's always I been my that question. Just they were very unkind. Uh, yeah. Why isn't Greenwich Median time? Yeah. yeah why is it mean? Meridian. I mean, that's it. That sort of implies it's the summation of a whole bunch of other times. It's on average uh, the same time all day long. Nasty. Now, now I'm gonna have to go back and ask these questions. Yeah. Get back to us on that, Matt. All right. Well, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here with Chris Gill and Donthea. Hello. Hi. From the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. And as always, Don and Chris are in the Godly Studio. I am still here in London trying to figure out Greenwich Mean Time. So we are getting closer and closer to summer, which means that we will have the Summer Institute of the Population Health Exchange, and for those of you who are interested, head over to the Population Health Exchange website where you can find the summer programs that are going on. That is BU's hub for lifelong learning. Don't forget the recipe there, page. You can, what's that? Don't forget the recipe page where they, they teach you how to make all those summer coolers. I see. Chris apparently has been editing the web. Chris, the website is not Wikipedia where you can just go in what? and make it uh, say whatever you want. Oh. It is a real website. What? Uh, and as a reminder, please go on to iTunes and uh, give us a rating. Guys, did you see there was a bump up in our downloads from France? No. We. Oui. I went I went and gave a talk no. in France, and immediately afterwards, we got a, a bump up in downloads. Really? So, wow. Yeah. So I think you guys need to go out and Maybe we should give it. ourselves a French toast. Oh. And there you go. And there we lost all of our French listeners. <laughs> Le well podcast done. plus meilleur de la monde. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I will agree to it. So now... Best podcast in the onto, world. Onto the show. So today, in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at the impact of sunset time on health. Then in our second part, which is our deep dive, we will talk about uh, something else, because I didn't write down what it was this time. Does anyone remember what it was? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, we don't. I did. It had something to yeah. do with pragmatic trials. It, and informed consent. No, it was a pragmatic trial. So it's uh, low, low whether low risk trials can be done without without consent. Consent. Yeah. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing amusing, uh, we'll get into some of the things that made us laugh out loud. Or Don will explain to us what is in our belly button lint. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Don. Mm-hmm. It's naked mole rats. It better not be. <laughs> oh, good lord! Can you imagine anything well, worse? See, here's the here's the problem. Here's the problem. So we record this. Uh, it's, it's like what? Three in the afternoon, your time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's eight, my time. So I have to go to bed after this. Well, not right after this, but 
And now I'm going to have nightmares about naked mole rats. So thank you for Swimming that, Swimming around in your belly button. They come, by, they come in the dozens. <laughs> anyway, so segment one. You can't have one. <laughs> they come as a, as a pod. As a family. Right. Okay. Oh, this Wouldn't is it over. be an exaltation of mole rats? <laughs> yes. Not is a that pod? Term? I like that. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, so segment one, we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of sunset time on health. It was published in the Journal of Health Economics, so it's a little bit outside of our usual uh, go-to type journals in that it was an economics journal. And really long. But I, yeah. I liked it all the same, though. So it was, it was titled Sunset Time and the Economic Effects of Social Jet Lag, which is a term I'd never heard before. Evidence from U.S. Time Zone Borders by Osea Gun. Gintella from the University of Pittsburgh, and also Fabri- Fabrizio Mazzona. Oh, I'm terrible with Mazzona. names. Mazzona. Mazzona. Something like that. Uh, so here are the headlines for this one. So the uh, Duluth News Tribune says, living on the wrong side of a time zone can be hazardous to your health. The New York Post says, living on the wrong side of a time zone can be damaging to your health. I think they were copying each other. CNN says how permanent daylight saving times and later school starts could affect your health. And the medical health news says experts, permanent daylight savings time could affect health. So at least they were consistent. That's not what the article said. No, but this is about daylight savings time. uh, Well, they sort of did. No, it's about time zones. No, they they referred to daylight savings time in the the introduction. But it's not about that. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. Don, so Don, explain this hey. study to us and and recognizing that this was an economic study, so it's going to be a little bit different from what we're normally so used to. Yeah. Not talk about any formulas. Yeah. <laughs> no formulas. Yeah. No, I want to dedicate this to one of my favorite quotes. Oh. And this is a quote by Dr. Quote, quote from the paper or one of your favorite quotes of all time? M- one of my favorite quotes of all time. Is it from okay. Game of Thrones? No. No, no, no. This is a quote from Dr. Chris Gill. Oh, no. I dream oh. I dream for sleep. It's <laughs> a good one. When, when did Dr. Gill say this? Never. Yeah. When did you say this, Chris? Recently, I think. Yeah. I was very tired. Yeah. Oh. All right. So, in any event, this is this is a little this is a little, little this one was a little hard to unpack. But basically, this is another regression discontinuity. Similar to the one that we did previously when we looked at the difference in uh, ADHD among children who were born on either side of the cut point for getting into kindergarten. And so it's sort of a natural experiment where you've got two very homogeneous populations that have one characteristic that is completely different. And in, the, in, in terms of the kids, it's when they were born and whether they get to go this year or next year to, to kindergarten. And in this study, what they did is they looked at populations of people living on either side, within 250 miles of a time zone in the United States. And they chose the three times, there's there's four time zones in the United States and therefore three boundaries. And they looked at the time zones along the three boundaries, which can um, go between states or can go down the middle of states and and, um, distinguish districts from one another. And by definition, people who live on the eastern portion of the time zone have one hour are, are one hour later than those who are on the left side, the western side, 
and um, one hour more of daylight. And one thing that I didn't know is that, th- and they made a big deal of is this. Is that backwards? No, I don't it think so. Backwards, because no, no. as you go, uh, the, like the furthest most western I put, point. I, I, I read it and I put it in bold to make sure <laughs> that I wasn't going to get it backwards. Anyway, we get the general idea. Yeah, yeah. And then the other the other input that they said was that uh, that may contribute to your evening routine was that the um, the um, main TV shows, the primetime TV shows, are at, say, 9 o'clock on the East Coast and on the West Coast, but in, in the two um, middle time zones, they're um, at 9 o'clock. So that would affect people's... 8, eight, eight o'clock on the East Coast and West Coast, 9 o'clock in right. the Central Mountain. Right. Or 9 right. and yeah. 10, yeah. But, but, but earlier in the, in the Mountain and Central time zones. So what they did was they used several data sets, one of which was American Time Use Survey data set, which is conducted, I guess, yearly, uh, by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they looked at a 10-year period from 2003 to 2013, and they also did a um, looked at current population survey, which is a CDC data set in the same areas that they were surveying that looked at certain health outcomes. They also had behavioral risk factor surveillance system data set, and they also looked at the National Cancer Registry. So the way the time use um, survey works is that uh, people are asked to fill out a detailed um, time use diary of their previous day's activity, time spent sleeping, eating, and the total sample for that nationwide survey is 148,000 individuals. But these authors restricted their analysis to individuals who were um, actually in the labor force, living within 250 miles of each time zone boundary, so Pacific Mountain, Mountain Central, and Central Eastern. They also merged that, as I said, with the current population survey data set from CDC, which does not contain county information for individuals living in counties that have fewer than 100,000 residents. Therefore, they could only match 44% of the sample, and the result was it was a more urbanized sample that ended up getting into the data set for um, being analyzed. They restricted it to individuals who were between 18 and 55 years of age, i.e. they omitted people who were likely to be retired or high school workers. And they ended up including 18,000 individuals of whom 16,000 were employed. And they um, did those three comparisons. And they also did comparisons stratified by latitude because the days are longer in the north in the summer and shorter in the north in the wintertime than in the south. So they're, they, they had to account for those differences. And their primary outcome was night sleep duration or the amount of night of sleep at night that was lost. And their secondary outcomes were health outcomes, which were obesity, diabetes, acute MI, stroke, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colorectal cancer. And they kind of put all of those together to make a sort of a health measure index. They had, they looked at covariates such as age, sex, education, race, marital status, year of immigration, and number of children, and also BMI and self-reported health, but that was not available for all years. The bottom line is when they did a comparison of individuals who were in residence to the west of the time zone versus those to the east, the ones who lived on the east side of the time zone had a longer day, um, a, a longer um, period of, of light in essence, Later, later sunset. I later guess. sunset, right, right. Later sunset. That they got 19 minutes less sleep per night than the comparable population on the left hand, left side. And it was worse too for like 
people who who had jobs that required them to get up in the morning. Right. And it was exacerbated. Like 30, 30 right. minutes less right. sleep so, on so, average. Yeah. So if you went to bed later, but you commuted to a job that was, you know, where you had to get up earlier, it exacerbated this, this issue. They also found that the sleep quality that they measured was more restless and that people woke up more, but by very, very small margins. And in terms of the health outcomes, where they aggregated the health outcomes by combining those studies, but the health outcomes, it wasn't per individual. It was really, as far as I could tell, was the health outcomes kind of aggregated within a particular district associated with being on the left the west or the east side of the of the time zone, they found that there was um, excess weight, there was more poor health status. This is all if you're living on the eastern side with the later sunset. Composite health index was 0.3 standard deviations lower, and that the wages were 3% lower. 11% were more likely to be overweight and 5% more likely to be obese. Mm. So, so there were health so consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're, if you're living on that eastern, uh, the, the late sunset side, you seem to have marginally worse health outcomes in your sleep Chris, you sound you sound surprised. Did did you in fact read the paper? Oh no, no, I did read the paper, and I I, I liked this paper. I thought I mean I, I thought it was very complicated. So give, us, give, give us your take on it. I, well, I was going to mention that there was another outcome that that uh, was included in the, that they they called the, like the back of the cocktail napkin or the back of the envelope. Economic which I analysis. thought was amazing to read in a in a scientific paper. Yeah, and in a, they actually in referred a, to it as yeah, we just did a back of the envelope calculation. Particularly in an in, a, in, a, in, an, in an economics, economics paper, <laughs> right? The, yeah. the like the, yeah, the most well like clearly economic part of this was the part that they uh, like, on the back of a napkin kind of wings the most. <laughs> It's true. It was not a very economicy paper, other than in the way that it was it was set up. Uh, well, we could talk about it, but the way it was set up and described. I thought the whole thing was super clever, and and actually, I was I was quite persuaded. And I was also curious, like how wide is a time zone? Because I just sort of like assumed that time zones were set to be about an hour wide, but that turned out not to be true. Have you ever driven through Nebraska? Oh it yes, forever. it takes forever. It does. So, do you guys know offhand what is the easternmost point of the United States where sun is seen first? It's in Maine. Yes, it is Acadia National Park. It's north of that, it's Lubeck, Maine. Cadillac Mountain. Well, that could be true, but I guess at sea level is what I would I would say. So standardized uh, at sea, sea level, level. I don't know. So the the, the answer is Lubeck, Maine, which is way up just on the the border with uh, with Canada, and it kind of juts out Potato far country. east. Yeah, it is very far east uh, geographically. And then if you go for like you know the westernmost part of the of the Eastern Standard Time Zone, there's a little piece that kind of nudges over just in Michigan, but there aren't a lot of people who live up there, so there's there's very few cities. So the most sort of practical, because the, the time zone is not straight up and down, it's very wiggly. You know, it, it crosses state lines and follows rivers and does all sorts of weird stuff. And so one of the furthest west parts of that same time zone is Terre Haute, Indiana. And so the time difference when when Lubeck sees the sunrise today, and I measured today uh, on Google, is at 5.19 a.m. is when they when the sun rises in Lubeck. And the sun rises in Terre Haute, Indiana at 6.52 a.m. So that's an hour and 42 minutes later. So it's actually wow. a really striking difference. Mm. So they have an hour and 42 uh, minutes more darkness uh, than, than no. the people who live on the far eastern part of... No, 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 no. They have the same amount of darkness that... The same amount, darkness but the, ends their, 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 their day starts an hour and 42 minutes yes. later. Then, yes. then they actually don't have the exact same because they're further south. But yes. So like when we're up and like running about and, and like, you know, getting busy and 
doing stuff and starting our day, it is pitch black for an hour and 42 about? minutes over there. <laughs> Who runs about? Well, you know. Don't you run two? Or lobster, lobster fishermen for one. <laughs> okay. And potato farmers. You run farmers. around, you run um, two, you run under, you potato run farmers. And there's an even more whack example of this, which is China. Which is about the same yeah, width of the United States. Yeah, you mentioned, and I was shocked by this. One time zone for the entire That's country. That's crazy. And it's Beijing standard time across the entire That's country. crazy. So like the people in Xinjiang, they've got like five hours of darkness while Beijing is up and bustling. It is. It is. Um, and there's. I mean, do, do do they shift their work schedules to account for that? I don't know how they deal with it, but they must do something because it just seems crazy. It certainly doesn't have an. It seem to have an effect on productivity. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I guess so. Okay. Anyway. Anyway, I thought this was a really clever analysis, and and I have to say, I was I was kind of persuaded for it, with the exception of the economic analysis, the back of the the envelope sure. one, which I didn't quite buy, because they were basically making the case that this the sort of loss of sleep that you get when you're on the 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 the, the western, the eastern side of the time zone, right? Of the timeline. If you're just on the east side of that, like you're the Terra Oats, right? You are penalized and you get 30 minutes less sleep and you have these health outcomes. And that translates into some degree of worker absenteeism, which then they, then they plugged into some model and came up with like, you know, some economic cost on the order of seven, eight hundred million dollars a year or something like that. So there was a lot of money. But I, wouldn't you also argue that that loss of productivity is, is compensated for on the far east side of the time zone? Where they would actually well, benefit they restricted from this. it to 250 miles around the around yeah, the time zone. I, I understand, but like that, the, the the argument that there's a penalty in labor loss on the western side surely is is balanced by the benefit on the eastern side. So I, I just felt like wouldn't that actually just be a wash in the end? I don't know. I mean, what what did you guys think about that? I, I'm not sure, but but uh, that, that part I I'll, I found the least interesting and persuasive part of the entire paper. But I will say, so I, I, I Chris, like you, I, I really like this study. I found it so clever and such a, such a, a, an interesting way to attack a problem. And I think you know that I, I, I enjoy these and I like these alternative approaches to getting at causation by, you know, sort of using these, these natural experiments. Yeah. You call it a natural experiment, I think is a, is a fair way. Uh, and yet I was not totally persuaded by this one, much as I loved it. Part of the reason I'm I'm not totally persuaded by it, and, and by the way, I should say, I'm not persuaded by it, and yet I think they did so much work with this this paper. They thought of all the criticisms, they they came up with with answers for so much of it. They did all kinds of different analyses to to solve some of these problems, and yet it still left me a little bit lacking. And so what I mean by that is that I'm I'm reasonably confident in the in the sleep measure. So they have this measure of sleep, and they essentially, you know, are comparing people very close to that border, and saying, you know, if you're on one side or the other, you should be roughly randomized. I'm not sure I totally buy that argument that you should be randomized living on one side of the border or the other. Now they make a, you know, the 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 people who live on you know one side of the border may be very different from people who live on the other side of the border, and that could be just because you know it just happened. You know, neighborhoods can be very you know like if you're in D.C., let's say you know you go from one neighborhood to the other, and you can be in vastly different socioeconomic status. Boston is the same, New York's the same. You know, these are not necessarily in cities, but even in you know different you know more rural areas, you could you come up with reasons why people live in particular places that are 
you know, might just be different on one side or the other. Now, I don't see that in the data. They they present data that would suggest these are reasonably comparable populations. And yet I still, I don't know. I, I could I could see the, the socioeconomic status on either side of the borders. Sure. I mean, the, 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 the implicit argument here is that there's sort of a, there's an inconvenience to being on the wrong side of the time zone because you're out of sync yeah. with everybody else. You've got the social jet lag going on. So yep. wouldn't you imagine that all things being equal, that people who have the choice to be on one side of the inconvenient time zone or the other would choose to be on the yeah. slightly less inconvenient side of the time zone? Well, and they, then therefore yep. there's supply and demand and they might be a little bit wealthier but, and better off. But they address that and they, and they said that they, 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 yeah. couldn't, they couldn't detect any kind of geographic shifting as a result of, of, of those issues, that the, that the populations appeared to be yep. quite stable and there wasn't a lot, what was it called, cross-bordering um, yep. movement. You know, the thing, that, the thing that struck me was that I think that there are differences when you think about the populations and, and, and the occupations and really what they're doing, what, what their work is and what their daily living is when you, com- when you do comparisons of the different borders because the, the eastern border, the um, eastern central border goes down a part of the country that's pretty much more urbanized than the central mountain border. And I, and I think that that could account for maybe not the differences within, but those are large differences in terms of, of, of yeah. perhaps health status and, and, and productivity status. Um, yeah. The other thing was that they chose to restrict individuals to be included in the analysis who were sleeping between two and 16 hours. So they excluded people who had less, on average, reported less than two hours the night before or more than 16 hours the night before in that time study. And it seems to me that those are, those are pretty extreme. It's a wide window. That's a wide window. Yeah. And, and you, you know, e- even if, if the window, it, it would seem to me that People could be manifesting some sort of a disease on either end of those those extremes. Sure. I mean, I, I think it might have been or, a little bit better to restrict it to maybe twelve hours or maybe yeah. ten hours. So the other thing was, that, you know, the the measure of sleep. I think I generally buy the sleep argument. I mean, that 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 generally holds together for me. Although I will say, you know, it's a it's a it's a, a self reported measure, self reported sleep, and I could see. Obviously, there's misclassification and self-reported sleep, but I could see it being differential. I could see that if you are on the side of the border that's that's you know got the later the uh, darkness later or earlier, you might might actually remember the amount of sleep that you're getting differently. Mm. Uh, and so I could see the the misclassification not just being non-differential, which would bias towards no effect, but I could actually see some differential misclassification that might explain the those differences. Mm, interesting thought. But generally, I do. Sorry. Yeah. No. Just saying. Interesting thought. I do. I do buy that. That it probably is some differences in sleep. Where I don't. I don't necessarily buy it so much as the health outcomes. Right. Where I think that's a bit of a bigger leap because, as Don says, we don't have the individual level data. We're looking at a, a more of a almost an ecologic measure of health on either side. And there, you know, if there's a if there's a 19 minute difference in sleep, I would not expect that to correlate or to translate, excuse me, into large health effects. I would think those would be pretty small. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if that's the case, if those are small effects, then all of these issues that we talk about around measurement error and differences between the populations, you know, gonna, it's going to require less differences between those populations to explain those small observed differences in health. And so I'm just, I'm not as convinced by the the health effects that they present 
they did something really nice, which which we, we really like, which is they did these placebo tests or negative control tests, where they essentially they looked at things that shouldn't be affected by differences in sleep pattern, like HIV or um, some cancers. And there they would say, you know, okay, and there we didn't find anything. But if you look at them, there's so much noise in those numbers that the 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 actual values aren't that they don't sort of look exactly the same on either side of the border, and the differences aren't that different from the differences that we see in the health outcomes that they say are different, like diabetes. So uh, I'm not, I'm just not totally convinced. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think I would agree with you about the sleep, and one piece of evidence that increased my confidence was the fact that the sleep differential uh, disappeared largely when you looked at the unemployed uh, population for whom maintaining parity in you know, like wake sleep times with the other the adjacent time zone would be less important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most people sleep differently on the weekends than they do on, during the week. Exactly. And once you retire, yeah. you know, the, you probably don't have to worry about getting up at the same time as the people in Lubeck. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so one other one other point I wanted to raise uh, about this, and I'm not accusing these authors of anything at all. I just thought it was an interesting time to to raise something that we've not talked about before, which is: uh, Are you guys familiar with the term "harking"? Yeah, uh, hypothesis after results known. I'm hypothesizing after the results are known. Yeah. So, so the idea is that, and this is, I have to admit, this is kind of the way I feel like I was taught to do things when I was first learning research is that essentially you you look at the results, then you take the results and you tell a story. Like you have to make up some story about the data. And therefore, you end up coming up with the hypotheses after you already know what the results are. And when you do that, you end up obviously making a, a coherent story that fits when in fact not everything necessarily fits. Right. It's not necessarily dastardly though. I mean, it's, this is a hypothesis generating approach. It, it would be fine. It would be fine if it was left to hypothesis generating as opposed to hypothesis testing. Mm-hmm. But I think people, the problem is becomes that people do this as hypothesis testing. And I did find myself wondering whether all of these negative placebo tests and all these different mechanisms they looked at, were these all pre-specified ideas that they had where they said, look, if, if, this, if this does have an impact, it should change X, Y, and Z, and it shouldn't change, you know, A, B, and C, or was it sort of after the fact? Now, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure they did a great job and I'm sure they did it, specify it all beforehand, but it is a case where, you know, I think you do have to be really careful when you see these effects that to me, you know, they interpret them as, as negative. I would interpret them as kind of the same as the ones they interpret it as positive. I just think it's something to, to kind of think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything anyone wants to bring up before I take the the last word? Oh, by the way, is, is, do we, do we have reason to believe a 20 minutes difference in sleep would be that important? I actually don't know. I'm a lot less. I'm a lot crankier when I get less than. But, you're, I, you're but I, I, if I'm deprived of 19 minutes of sleep, yeah, crankier, crankier. If I'm deprived, okay. Just, <laughs> yeah, you're taking right. a little shot at you there. I know. I know. Don, I chose to ignore it, Chris. <laughs> okay, so so. Oh, um, I did want to end. You know, I seem to have this obsession with. <laughs> I do, as you know, I seem to have this obsession with the size of the introduction. You do. And you notice this, this introduction is massive. It's pages of, all right, yeah. where they give what we would normally put in the introduction. They give what we would normally put in the discussion, mm-hmm. the hypothesized mechanisms by this by which this should work. And then they give the results mm-hmm. in the introduction. Yeah. It's 
like such a different way of thinking about things. Yeah. But unlike, I, I don't know, I got the sense, Don, you, you found this a little, it, it was not your favorite one to read. I feel like it was long. We in the epidemiology world should be forced to read one economics paper per year. Cause I actually think it's very like, they are so detailed in the way they think through this. Not, you can't just say we tested a hypothesis. It's gotta be, here's the mechanism that we think is going on. Here are the 10 different experiments that we're going to do with the data that we have. I just, I, I think it's actually very thorough and mm-hmm. kind of refreshing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but a different publishing. I also model. like the fact that they, what? A very different publishing model because the totally medical different. journals would not tolerate, you know, 20,000 word papers. Like, I don't exactly. know how long this was, but, yep. but yeah, it was pretty, you, uh, pretty uh, long. If you gave me back my 19 minutes, I would I would have enough time to read a paper this long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you would, actually. I, uh, <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> no, I, I didn't save them all up for the end of the week. I also love that as economists, they refer to sleep as a commodity. I know, I love that. Yeah. I noted that that's also. Brilliant. That's brilliant. That's, um, it's, it's a commodity in high demand is what they said. Sleep is a commodity, as a commodity we all demand. It's like butter. I certainly demand it. <laughs> Pork the bellies. other thing was, um, did you notice there was no, there's no ethics statement? Yeah, because they didn't study any patients. No, I know, but normally you say that, right? You say... You know, we um, didn't. Well, we didn't do. Maybe it in economics, because... it's just assumed that that's the baseline because they're just dealing with like aggregate numbers yeah. and reports. I found it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Was there, was there yeah. an ethics statement in the ADHD paper? Uh, oh, there must have. I been. wonder because they they also looked at aggregate data. We should go back and fully anonymized. Yeah. Huh. All right, I will. I'm going to do my introduction to segment two. You guys go look it up. Okay. All right. So let's uh, let's move on to our second segment where we want to talk about an article that came out in the British Medical Journal, and it was entitled "Low Risk Pragmatic Trials Do Not Always Require Participants' Informed Consent" by Raphael Dalray and colleagues. And the argument that they made in this article is essentially that we desperately need real world evidence that the drugs, the interventions, the whatever it is we're trying to test. We need to know about how these work in the real world, not just how they work under the uh, often very contrived and controlled environments that come up in clinical trials. And this is something that we have talked about, almost complained about at various times on the podcast that, you know, trial populations generally don't represent the general population and the conditions under which trials are conducted don't often represent real world conditions. And so we often get results from trials that don't really tell us about how drugs are going to work in the real world. And the argument that they make is that, and I'm quoting here, low-risk pragmatic randomized controlled trials pose no or minimal incremental risk compared with usual clinical care and are typically head-to-head comparisons of medicines that are routinely prescribed according to their marketing authorization. In other words, they're saying, if all we're trying to do is test medications that are already approved for a particular condition. We just want to compare them head to head, figure out which one is best. So we're not increasing risk. This is a decision that a clinician would make anyway. Then in that case, there's it's 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 essentially just like routine care. We're not increasing risk mm-hmm. for these patients mm-hmm. in any way. And in that case, they say, and again, I'm quoting here, should we then consider including participants in low risk, pragmatic, randomized trials without seeking informed consent. Is this approach ethically feasible? And they go on to give you know some rationale for this, some approaches to how you could 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 uh, go about this. But the question is, I mean essentially they're they're making the argument that there is an imperative to get better evidence 
by removing the need for consent. Oh, by the way, I should back up and say the reason they're saying we need to remove consent is once you have consent, consent is one of the reasons why the participants in trials don't look like the patients that, that these drugs normally are applied to or these behavioral interventions or whatever it is are applied to is because once you have to go through a consent process, we lose people. Right. And you've biased and so, the sample already. Yeah. Biased. Uh, bias is probably not the right word. We, we changed the generalizability. And so the question becomes, uh, if we were, Don is giving me a look. Why is that different? Because no, Chris is giving me a look. <laughs> because you, you can get a perfectly valid answer to the question of, of the effectiveness of a drug in a particular population, even if that population is just not the general population. Yeah, I agree with Matt. So you get the right answer for that population. And he's agreeing with me just because I'm slipping him some money under the table here. Uh, Transatlantically. Okay. So so the so the so the point here is that if you if you have the need for consent, those those trials are never going to represent the general population. Now there are other barriers, of course, to getting a population that represents the general population, which they do note, but the point that they are trying to make is in these very low risk situations, is it ethical to simply say we should be able to do away with consent for these types of studies? Makes me nervous. Yeah. So 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 hum a few more bars of that. What do you mean? Uh, yeah. I I think it's based on a on a on a, 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 pre- a presumption that I don't necessarily agree with, and that is that there are equivalent therapies, whether it's medicine or whether it's a behavioral therapy. I think that is can be true in a general sense, but as a clinician, I realize that a lot of times what appears to be equivalent medicines, what appears to be equivalent interventions, are not such for an individual. And it yeah. may be that the particular individual that I am trying to, that I would like to enroll in this particular study would be slightly more, slightly better served by being, by receiving the other quote unquote equivalent medication that I am either have been randomized not to provide or am randomizing for this person not to provide. And to do that without the consent of the individual I think is I think it's disingenuous and I think is potentially dangerous because my motivation will be not solely to serve this individual it will be also to make sure that the science turns out to be as good as it can be so I've got a conflict of interest um, in that instance and a, a, a consent form informs the 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 individual to whom this applies that I have that conflict of interest and mm-hmm. I think it's important mm-hmm. for them to know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like they're, they're, they're conflating two things here where there's the issue of generalizability and to what degree is that, is, do we lose generalizability through the consent process? Then there's a second issue, which is whether, you know, there are certain trials that could not be done without a waiver of consent. And that, those are separate mm-hmm. issues entirely. Yeah. And we can debate them as totally separate entities. Yeah. Right. But these, I think we're talking about cases here where you, you absolutely could get consent. Yeah. You're just worried that getting consent is going to change your population. So I, I'm curious about, like, like, can we put a, an example behind this? Like, I mean, what, what if we wanted to do, for example, um, a randomized control trial of patients who've got streptococcal pharyngitis, and we're going to randomize them to get amoxicillin versus penicillin, right? Or amoxicillin versus Keflex to make the difference a little bit more stark. Mm-hmm. And we would think that both of those would be pretty reasonable treatments. Amoxicillin is the gold standard. Keflex should work too. But is that, 
is that a situation where you could you, you you could make the argument that this is that this is a, a situation where we would waive consent because it would be I don't know why because are both drugs are both drugs approved for use for this condition? Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, maybe, and, I'm actually still surely, but I don't know about. And Catholics. is this a decision that a clinician could make on their own, independent of the study? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. So I suppose in that case, so, but what, so, the, the argument would right, be... So what, so, but what if the patient had a history of an allergy to a cephalosporin? Okay, so there's a risk, right? Uh, which is which is a risk, and 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 uh, that that you need to you need to include in your clinical decision making. And if you are being affected by, you know, how to randomize that individual, you might in, incur a greater risk to right. that individual. And that. The the, the 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 patient needs to know that because how how would this then go down? Like the the clinician writes a script and says, "I want to give this patient amoxicillin because they're allergic to Keflex," and then the the macro master up there who's designing this trial, unbeknownst to the clinician or the patient, randomizes them and he gets amoxicillin or right. Keflex and has an allergic reaction. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose you you but you would never prescribe the drug to a patient with that. Correct. Right. So the uh, clinician would say that would be an exclusion criteria. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's a a, a true, but uh, but how problem would, but how would the trial I, I people know saying, that, right? What's how that? would the trial people know that? I mean, it, it could well be that the clinician would have documented in the in the EMR that this patient is allergic yep. to Keflex, but it's also possible that they wouldn't have done that. It, I'm, I'm sure it can happen all the time that that a patient well, say I, I I can't take Keflex, I think I'm allergic to it, and the, the patient says okay, I'll it, give you amoxicillin instead, and they don't enter that in the. The allergies field no, of the no, EMR. But, they, but, but hang on, I, they're not. The, the idea here isn't that you're you're not doing anything. The, the trial doesn't suddenly become, you know, we're just going to randomize patients to 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 get a drug. You'd still do all the same things that you would do for a trial. You you take a history. You determine whether or not the patient is eligible. You would then, if they met the inclusion criteria, randomize them. You just wouldn't seek the consent to do that. So I, I don't I mean I I, I share Don's concern. I'm just saying I don't I don't I think we're you're you're we're conflating some things here. Mm-hmm. I so when I think about this, I, I went the exact same place you did, Don, which is I don't know I'm not comfortable with this because I think that this is it, it has the potential for a slippery slope, and I know slippery slope arguments are terrible arguments, but I, I don't know where this this has the potential to be abused, and that's part of what I don't like about it. If you pan back out and move away from the line, there are certainly cases where I see no problem with trials that don't involve consent. So, out of hospital defibrillator. Well, no, no, I, I move even further away, like lower risk, like a a health systems intervention, where we're just going to change, you know, the 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 way that we set up the hospital and see if it has an impact on, you know, some so you know patients' willingness to to stay for treatment or whatever it is, you know, those, these sort of really low risk stuff that's really just rearranging the way the healthcare system works as opposed to providing drugs. And I should say, we, we, we have done these types of studies. We do studies where, you know, that there is going to be a, a rearrangement to healthcare systems. And we just simply take advantage of that and, and look at the impacts. But my concern is when you start getting into drugs, when you start getting into strategies, interventions, even. Yeah, that are 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 beyond sort of behavioral changes or structural changes. Uh, I think that has the the potential to be abused, and I I worry that we don't have the best track record of not abusing, not going up to the line and going past it as a field. And I think that's where my worry comes in. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I agree. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, if, if you're dealing with individuals I, and, and, and allocation into a study is part of your decision-making, I just think it's wrong not to let the, that individual patient know that that's what part if, of so your decision-making. So what if the, um, you're going to do, uh, let's say you're a government and you want to do a uh, cash transfer uh, intervention where you're going you're gonna to provide money to people who are below a certain you know, certain uh, level of poverty index, and you're going to see if that has impacts on people's school enrollment, on, uh, you know, attending a healthcare center, whatever it is. But you only have a limited amount of money. And so you decide that the best way to allocate this is just essentially through a lottery system, which is randomization. Right. Right. Is that then ethically justified to do without, without consent? I think that would probably fall in the category of things where you could go to an IRB and request a waiver of informed consent. I agree with you. I agree with you. Well, what's the risk? I don't. I think I it's, don't imp- think there, it's impractical to that's do. That's my my point. I don't think there is there, risk, and so I think if you can you can clearly show that there is no risk, then or or sorry that there is limited risk. There's never no risk. Then I think you're on safer ground. But I think once we start getting into drugs, the three of us suddenly got nervous, far less comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because we don't always know the the risks of drugs, even when they are established drugs. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's the reason why this is less comfortable for us. Than, I mean, even established even established drugs have side effects that don't become known for years. Yeah, right. And I, I you know, I think we've we've had a number of drugs that have ended up being taken off the market much much later right. because we didn't discover the side effects until right. much later on. So yeah, and 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 so maybe that's it. Maybe. What we're we're saying is behavioral interventions we might be much more comfortable, or structural interventions to health systems we might be more comfortable. But when it comes to drugs, we're not there. Yeah, I would agree. Yep. All right. All right. Last segment. Well, then, How about that, Chris? Chris, do you want to do the intro then? Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about our favorite favorite wacky and weird science example. This is the part of the yep. show where we we just get really irreverent and we we share stuff that we find just charming or amusing in some way or wacky and wacky and i'm gonna st- no i'm gonna start no this is amazing, amazing and amusing, amusing segment. wild and wacky uh wild and wacky amazing and amusing. chris I'm, you're already i'm gonna start because you're already talking I, so why I gotta don't you go. go first so yeah so uh apex predators of the ocean who who are the the absolute two top badasses i, I can't say that great, great white <laughs> okay great white is one uh uh dolphins no but you're on the right track Tiger Big sharks. dolphins. Big dolphins, which are called? Shamu. Namu. Yes. Namu. Yeah, orcas. Yeah. Okay, so those, those, are, the, those are the two two apex, the main apex predators. And I suppose you could add in sperm whales, too. Those are pretty big. But we, we think about them in a different category because they, they go and eat giant squids deep down. We, we do or you do? They do. They okay. do. So they, there was a, um, you know, there's a lot of interest here about great white sharks in Massachusetts because they are, because we have a lot of seals now because we're protecting them. And now we got a lot of great sharks that eat the seals. And eventually everybody knew that someone was going to get chomped in two years. Somebody got chomped and then last summer got, someone got killed by a great white. So like this, this has sort of gone from a hypothetical concern to an, to an actual concern now. And there are great whites also um, increasingly seen off the coast of California. And I was just in San Francisco last week week. And then when I went to Stimson's Beach, beautiful spot. Stinson. Stinson Beach, excuse me. And there are now warning signs on the beach about the great whites yeah. saying, you know, watch it. So, so the question is like, which of these two apex predators is kind of like the more, more like bad 
what am I allowed to say? <laughs> bad, just bad. All right. So off the coast, there are, of you know, there's, there's these islands called the, the Lesser Farallon mm-hmm. Islands, mm-hmm. Uh, which I've never been to, but apparently are beautiful. But there's like lots of great whites swimming around eating the seals, particularly the elephant seals. And there's a year, part of the year where the elephant seals like, you know, haul out to, to, to basically have pups. And so that is open season on, for the great whites. It's like, it's like ringing the dinner bell and it's a giant buffet for about four months where they eat them. And there are lighthouses on the Farallon Islands where they do observations to watch the predations. And it's pretty obvious because, you know, the water water gets all bloody. So it's like, it's not subtle Mm. when one of these elephant seals gets chomped. And then they also have a bunch of marine biologists who run around in, in motorboats and tag the great whites and have set up this system of sonar buoys all around the Farallon Islands so they can follow, you know, Henry and Juno and, you know, Lucy as they swim around and eat the seals. Now, this is all by way of background because this fascinating phenomenon has been now observed four years running in the Farallon Research Institute. Uh, 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 area where they be following the great white sharks, doing their thing, eating the seals, swimming around the Farallon Islands, and they're there and there and there and there. And then a pod of orcas will show up at the Farallon Islands, and the great white sharks disappear. Really? They are gone. Wow. They are out of Dodge City before you can say boo. Like within hours, every great white shark is gone from the waters. And these are pretty big islands. And so the sharks must be very like acoustically aware of whatever echolocation noises the orcas are making they, because they huh. make a bloody racket, you know, where they're peeing all the time. Mm. And the sharks also get eaten by orcas. And so the sharks leave immediately and they do not come back for months. Wow. Whoa. That's amazing. They're just like, we're, uh, yeah, we're done. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> like a motorcycle gang so coming cool. into town. Right. It was so cool. I was like, wow, huh. there you go. Very cool. Turn tail and run. There you go. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go second. Make Don go last. So mine comes from the BMJ Christmas edition from 2017. Mm. BMJ Christmas edition is one of our favorites. Although I will say this one is not. It's not as wacky as some of the other ones. This one I actually think is is um, holds up as some some decent science, but but asks an interesting question that I think we will all be interested in. So this was from 2017. It was by Wow. Okay, I got the I got the uh, name wrong. So it's Zor- Zorana Zupan and Alexandra Evans and Dominique Laurent uh, Couturier. Uh, at all. I can't do at all. At all. There you go. And the title of their article is Wine Glass Size in England from 1700 to 2017, A Measure of Our Time. (laughs) And they looked at whether or not, in fact, wine glass sizes had increased uh, over this time period as we are now consuming and whether it has a role in the amount of alcohol we are all consuming. And so the way they did this was, well, so they start off by noting that wine consumption has increased fourfold between uh, 1916 and 1980, and then almost doubled between 1980 and 2004. And so they wanted to look at uh, wine glass capacity as an initial step to trying to understand whether uh, potentially you might have a a health intervention by reducing wine glass size, because that was one of the things that has been studied in the past, things like uh, smaller plates. And so what they did was they got measurements of wine glasses from five sources. So they went to the Department of Western Art at uh, the University of Oxford, the Royal Household, uh, where a new set of glassware is commissioned for each monarch between, so they got data from 1808 to 1947, eBay, 
the catalog from Dartington Crystal, an English glassware manufacturer, and John Lewis, the department store with the largest online selection of glassware. And they stitched all this data together, and they found that wine glass capacity has increased from 66 milliliters in the 1700s to 417 milliliters in the 2000s. Wow. And the mean mean wine glass size in 2016 to 2017 was 447 milliliters with a standard deviation of 167. So the the increase was generally pretty gradual until the 1990s when it became pretty marked, as they say. Wow. Wow. And so they, they say their findings suggest that the capacity in England has increased significantly over the past 300 years with this marked increase in the uh, 1990s. And however, they do note some of the limitations of these studies, in particular that smaller wine glasses may have an endurance advantage over larger ones, which could true. explain their findings. So smaller wine glasses may be less likely to be damaged and therefore would stay in the mm. these collections from the older time periods. There was also a an excise, a glass excise tax levied in 1746 that would med, led to the manufacture of smaller glass products. I don't know that that's a limitation, but just one of the things they noticed. Anyway, I just found it fascinating. I think they you know put this together for the BMJ Christmas edition as a a bit of a, a humor, but a humorous piece. But I thought actually it was pretty clever. Was there a difference between uh, red and white wine glasses? Didn't didn't say. Huh. About- didn't say, but I would assume there would be right. Yeah, Based on you would my think so. Experience. Drinking wine. You know, I wonder if the, if like a whiskey tumblers could be like a control because they're pretty robust, right? And you wouldn't think that the, they'd they be as change. sensitive over time because they're like thick crystal glass, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I don't know. Hmm. Cool. All right, Don, what do you got for us? All right. So um, I there's a paper that I came across called Risky Business by Stephanie Johnson et al. from the Proceedings of the Royal Society. Researchers from Leeds University of Colorado and Bilbao University in Spain on toxoplasmosis. Wow, and they made a movie out of okay. this too. <laughs> Did they? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Tom Cruise. Risky so, business. So in any event, they, um, they were interested in seeing whether you could detect a behavioral change in human beings as a result of being infected with toxoplasmosis. Because it is well known, apparently, that there are behavioral changes in mice that get infected with toxoplasmosis, which which is a parasite that affects, can infect almost all mammals, but the definitive host is a cat. And a, cat, and a cat feces contains the, the infective cysts. And apparently cats can produce up to 250 million cysts per week. Wasn't, so, wasn't this a central part of the movie Train Spotting? I don't think I ever saw that movie. I feel like somebody got really sick from so so, yeah. so when mice become infected with toxoplasmosis, apparently... They lose their aversion to the smell of cats, and in particular, the smell of cat urine. So it's this evolutionary development in the favor of the cats that that, that, um, allows them more successful hunting of the mice when the mice become infected. And it's the cat that is the only mammal that actually produces these cysts. So... It's so the cat is not infe- uh, affected by it. Not, not, not like uh, other uh, other mammals, because wow. because what happens is it we are all other mammals are a dead end host for this particular organism. It it it, it has a complete life life cycle in cats. 
So these authors asked whether there was a correlation between risk-taking in humans and the detection of IgG for toxoplasmosa, pl oh, wow. plasmosis in the saliva. So they did an analysis in 1,495 university students where they measured the saliva presence of IgG for toxo. And they found that those individuals who were positive for toxo were 1.4 times more likely to major in business, which they considered to be a more risky, risky. outcome, and 1.7 times right more likely to emphasize entrepreneurship within business, and 1.8 times more likely if they were attending a business meeting to have actually started a business. So their bottom line <laughs> is that... These people's behavior may be being induced, uh, their risky behavior, risky business, okay. uh, risk-taking might be induced so, by being infected with toxoplasmosis. So not, so not bungee intriguing. jumping. So what? <laughs> not, not bungee jumping, not, not, uh, no, no, uh, no. you know, starting a business skiing, and being an entrepreneur, not diving with sharks, but Open, entrepreneurship. Yeah, Got I think they may, they may be reaching a little I'm deep there. <laughs> That's I not, think well, I thought it was fascinating, that whole thing about rats. Yeah, apparently. I've, I'd they heard become that fear, too. They become fearless towards the, cats. The, the, some other... It's the... Um, the it's the cysts in the brain. It, yeah, it's the same thing with the Bayless Ascaris prussianus, the the, the tape, the, the, the roundworm for the raccoons. Uh -huh. And then that they eat... They're omnivorous and they eat mice and it causes encephalitis in the mice and so they become like sitting ducks for the raccoons right. to eat them up, right. and so it like makes you know it completes the cycle for them. Poor mice haven't figured Chris, it out yet. Yeah. Chris, you love you love talking about parasites, don't you? I sure do. Oh, so do I. When 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 I think it was like like I probably knew you for maybe a year when I heard you utter the phrase, "Ooh, that's my third favorite parasite." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and which one yeah. was that the I have favorite? no idea but I don't I'm know. sure Chris does I don't know but I think my favorite one is still Strongyloides turcoralis but well yeah, obviously it's a good one Strongyloides okay well <laughs> so. that is the end of our program if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on you can tweet us at at PopHealthEx, or you can tweet me at at ProfMadFox, or you can tweet Chris at at ID.Gill, or Don at at DTheo1. Or as always, you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode.